Alright, well, it is 9.45, so we'll get started. We're uh, moving up in the world. The last two days we started 10 minutes late. Today we're going to start 5 minutes late, so we're getting there. Um, I am well aware of the fact that the last two days you've already had your good morning kinfire coming in, so you were hyped up already. This morning you're probably still asleep. And if there's anything I'm not good at, it's being a hype man. So I'm not even going to attempt to do that with you. Um, Instead, what I'm going to do is the polar opposite. I'm going to read you a prayer. <laughs> uh, this track is trusting and hearing God's voice. And the last two days, really, it's been trusting God's voice. The Bible is the very word of God, and it is sufficient for all that we need. This morning is hearing God's voice. How do we hear God's voice today? Probably a pretty obvious answer to the Bible, but we'll talk about that a little bit more. But what I want to do is start by reading you a prayer. Has anyone seen this book, Into His Presence? Maybe some of you have seen the book Valley of Vision. It's a collection of Puritan prayers. This is a newer one that's come out. It's incredible. Um, just a high recommendation for this one. Just a collection of Puritan prayers that were put together about all different kinds of things. And if you'd like to just listen, go ahead. I have reproduced it for you in your handout on the last page. So if you want to follow along by reading, just scroll to the last page of your handout there um, on your phone and you can follow along. But this one is called Before, During, and After. And it's speaking about our heart attitude before, during, and after encountering the Word of God specifically when it is preached to us, but this could go just as much for reading, really. So let me read you this prayer, and we'll use this just as our prayer, that the Lord would help us this morning as we consider his word. So here's what George Swinnick writes. Lord God, as the Holy Scriptures have such authority, bearing as they do your handwriting and heart, and as by the star I am guided like the wise men to Jesus, may I set a high price on every part of them, for his sake whose image and inscription they bear. May my conduct before, during, and after your word witness that I esteem the law of your lips above thousands of pieces of gold and silver. As I go to read or hear the word, may I sanctify my soul and wash my heart from sin, and so with meekness receive your saving word. I recognize my inability by myself to profit by your word, and the speaker's inability to drive it home, and so I cry mightily to you, my God, to open my heart to receive the word with all affection, and may the arrows of the preacher pierce my dearest corruptions. That's glory right there arrows of the preacher pierce my dearest corruptions. May the weight of the word sink deep into my heart, that I may receive virtue from Christ to dry up the stream of my sin and cleanse my ways. May the noise of the world not hinder me from hearing your voice. When I come to the word, may I set myself solemnly in your presence with fear and awe to give audience to your word as to my Lord. And because without application the word will be unprofitable, may I never draw a curtain over what I see, but disregarding others, may I see my own face in the mirror of the law. That hurts, doesn't it? 
My prayer is that the gospel may come to me, not in word only, but also in power, that I might behold the Lord and so be changed into his image from glory to glory. After the seed is sown, may showers of blessing from heaven accompany it, that from it may spring up the fruits of righteousness to your glory and the good of my soul. May the blossoms of my good intentions, which sprouted while the minister was preaching, ripen into practice. And may I never rise from this spiritual food without giving thanks to the master of the feast. Amen. Session's over. You can go. (laughs) That's how we hear the word of God, isn't it? That's the attitude to hearing the word of God. My favorite line in that is right near the end. Just imagine yourself throughout the sessions this week. You're sitting there hearing glory after glory in the preaching and going out. I will follow Christ wholeheartedly. I'll never do that sin again. I will never. And he says, may the blossoms of my good intentions, which sprouted while the minister was preaching, ripen into practice. That I, I need to pray that every time before I hear the word of God and before I read the word of God. Those blossoms that are there as you're listening, Lord, may they ripen as I walk away. Because we walk away, the kids start fighting, and we forget. Right? So I thought that would just be a good way to start. That is how we hear the word of God. And I gave you that in your handouts so that even if you don't go buy this book, you can enjoy that prayer and use it yourself. Perhaps that's a good prayer to read on a Sunday morning before you go to church. Uh, or before you read your personal Bible reading. So, let's get started. Our friends in the next room, the youth, are chatting anyway. So we're going to have some chats this morning. Um, Here's what I want you to discuss. You'll see this question, just with the people around you, as we've been doing. In light of everything that we've talked about, is daily Bible reading necessary for growth as a Christian? And if the word daily freaks you out and sounds legalistic, you're welcome to substitute in the word consistent or regular instead. So, there's your question. Is daily, consistent, regular Bible reading necessary for growth as a Christian? Go. Give two minutes.
So what's your answer? Here's my God of the moment. I was waiting for this all week. Through the history of the church, daily consistent Bible reading was impossible for most Christians. So you're, the answer, yes, is the right impulse, but it is entirely anachronistic, meaning out of time, because this is a miraculously modern invention. Isn't it? Let me give you two barriers that our Christian forefathers had to daily Bible reading. Number one, they didn't have Bibles, right? They had no access to Bibles. Books were not invented until the second to fourth century AD. So there was no technology to put the whole thing into one volume. Instead, they had collections of scrolls. Try carrying that around with you, right, to do your daily Bible reading. And even after books were invented, there was no photocopier slash printing press invented until Gutenberg in 1450, which meant that every single book which was ever produced was written out by hand by a scribe until 1450 AD, which meant they were extremely expensive. One scroll, which was about seven and a half meters long, would contain one book of the Old Testament. And one scroll would take about 17 to 20 sheepskins to produce. There's 24 books in the Old Testament. So we're just talking the Old Testament here. You needed about 480 sheepskins to make one copy of the Old Testament. Not to mention all of the man hours to then fill those sheepskins with writing, right? So, just by way of example, in 682 AD, there was an abbey in England that was granted land to raise 200 cattle so that they could provide parchment to create three illustrated Bibles. They got land so they could raise 200 cattle to make three illustrated Bibles. So that's your first period. You don't have a Bible for most of the history of the church. But that's not the only barrier, right? What's the second barrier? Even if you had access, you couldn't read it because you couldn't read, right? Up until 1820, only 12% of the world could read and write. In 1960, only 42% of the world could read and write. In 1960. In 2015, now 85% or 86% of the world can read and write. But for most of the history of the church, the average believer could not read, could not write. They could not read Bible. They didn't have one, and even if they did, they had no idea what it was, what it meant. So, how did they intake the Word of God? Through the public reading of Scripture, right? And I have a few verses there on your handout, just so you can see that. That well-known passage, expository preachers love this passage in Nehemiah 8. This is one of these glorious pictures of expository preaching, you might want to call it, in the Old Testament. All the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gates. They told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, men and women, and all who could understand what they heard. 
on the first day of the seventh month, seventh month, verse 3, and he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning and until midday, and in the presence of the men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law. Then in verse 8, it says they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly they gave the sense so the people understood the reading. That's how people intake, would intake the Word of God in the Old Testament, in the synagogues, obviously, as it came closer to the New Testament time. But then think about 1 Timothy 4, verse 13. Paul's instruction to Timothy, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. Now we hear that, well, yeah, I guess we should probably publicly read Scripture, and then maybe we'll just preach too. No, you had to publicly read Scripture because no one got it otherwise. That was the only way they could intake it all week, was if it was publicly read when they met. Or James 1.22, we'll talk more about this passage later. But did you notice, James 1.22, be doers of the word and not readers only. Right? No. Hearers only. Because that's how they would intake the word of God. Hearing, not reading. Now, some of us probably have tried to listen to audio Bibles before. We're like, oh, it just doesn't work for me. I just can't. I just can't remember what I hear. That was their only option for most of the history of the church. So my point in this is that the way that God's people heard His word through most of the history, well, all the history of the Old Testament, and most of the history of the church as well, was the public reading of Scripture, not personal devotions, because they couldn't do that. So, does this mean we shouldn't read our Bibles? No. <laughs> That's not what I'm trying to say. What I am saying is what a grace to be born today. That you own in your hand, you hold in your hands the Word of God, and you can read it. That is an immense privilege. And you can read it in your own language. Too, right? In the language that you grew up in. So, because of the realities of everything we've talked about these last sessions, that this is the very Word of God, that it's sufficient for all we need, absolutely, we should be reading the Bible ourselves, meditating it, reading it, hearing it, every opportunity that we have. And did you know that the entire Old Testament is structured in a way to remind us of the importance of the Word of God. Now, this is, this is a potential soapbox for me because I'm really into this topic and I'm going to try not to get into it too long. But, the Old Testament in your English Bible is not structured and ordered in the way that it was in Jesus' Bible. Jesus' Old Testament, again, there were no books when Jesus was around, but in the way that they ordered their Old Testament, it was not the same order as ours. In Jesus' time, the Old Testament was divided into three categories, the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. And Shane actually read from Luke 24 yesterday, and you hear Jesus reference that, everything that was written about me in the Law, and the Prophets, and the Psalms, which is another way to talk about the Writings. So, the Law starts with Genesis, the prophets in Jesus' Bible, the second part started with Joshua, and the third part, the writing, started with Psalms. Now, do you remember how each of those parts begins? I have it there. 
in your handout. How does Genesis 1 begin? And God said, 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 the word of God. God speak. Yeah, creation, yes. But it's the word of God, word of God, word of God. Then you wrap up the Torah, you finish Deuteronomy, and you start into the prophets in Joshua. And what does Moses say to Joshua in Joshua 1? This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so you may be careful to do all that is written in it. So as soon as you start into the prophets, the first thing you hear is, everything you just heard, meditate on it day and night. Then, you get into the third part, begins in the Psalms, how does Psalm 1 start? The first Psalm. Exact same language as Joshua 1, right? His delight is in the Torah of Yahweh. And on his Torah, he meditates day and night. The exact same language that was used in Joshua 1 verse 8. Whoever it was who put together the Old Testament canon, many people would, conservative people, would think maybe Ezra and Nehemiah would be the ones who finally put everything together. They wanted you to know, at the very beginning of each section of the Old Testament, your life depends on meditating day and night on the Word of God. So, we should meditate on the Word of God. Every opportunity, every chance that we get. But why? Why should we do so? Right? And that's what we want to do, is talk about some of this for the rest of our time. We want to talk about what does God's Word do, why should we hear it, and then how should we hear it? How should we approach it in light of what it does? So, you get to chat again for a little while. You can see your question there in the handout. I want you to discuss for a few minutes what should be our goal in reading or hearing the Word of God. I'm going to add in a second question to make it personal and uncomfortable for you. What is your goal usually when you hear or read the Word of God? What's in the secrecy of your own heart, if you're willing to share that, why are you coming to it? What are you hoping to get when you read the Word of God? Okay? If you're willing to share that. I'm not saying that you have these weird secret motives. I don't mean that, but, but just <laughs> what's, what's your heart posture? What are you looking for when you come to the Word of God? That's what I'd like you to chat with each other. So what should be our goal and what is your goal when you come? You have a few minutes. <laughs> Thank you. 
is the very life and presence of God. That is what we need. And Jesus says, well, actually, Peter says to Jesus, you have the words of what? Eternal life. That's what we need. Again, not that I'm not saying we don't need encouragement, we don't need hope, and I'm actually going to talk about that in a minute as one of the reasons we should read the Bible. But ultimately, we need God himself. We need his life. And another inadequate reason to read is growth in knowledge alone. Now, I'm going to give growth in knowledge as one of the reasons we should read the Word of God, but growth in knowledge alone would be a wrong reason to read, right? Imagine my wife giving me a card on our anniversary and me reading it and analyzing it, the literary structure of it, to understand her motivations behind writing it and all these things, instead of seeing it as a doorway to fellowship with her, which is what it is, right? These are words of fellowship between the two of us. It's ridiculous. Who would do that, right? But if we read the Word of God only that way, which, to be honest, is one of my biggest struggles in reading the Word of God, I've got a brain that just analyzes and constructs and figures out, and, and that's, that's one of my biggest struggles, is I just analyze the Word of God instead of fellowshipping with the God who wrote it. So, why should we read the Word of God? Well, our expectations, our motives for reading God's Word should be shaped by our theology. What does God intend to do through His Word? What is the purpose of His Word? Now, I'm going to give you five things. You can see them on your handout. Through His Word, God intends to do five things. There's probably more than this. These are just five I could think of. And we're going to have some summary here from, or some review from the last couple days. We're going to see some passages we talked about, so I'm not going to spend a ton of time on here. I'm more just thinking, let's put this together in thinking about this is what God does through His Word, okay? So first, through His Word, God provides us with guidance and direction, doesn't He? So a lot of times, I think that's why we come to read the Word of God. I'm struggling, I'm not really sure. I need help, Lord. I need guidance. I need direction. I need wisdom, right? And you can just think of a Simple, very well-known example, Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. God intends to direct us, give us wisdom and guidance for our lives, doesn't he? But often we stop there, don't we? And God's word is not a life manual of tips. That is a very, very low view of God's word. If we stop there, is, here's my tips for living today. Second, God teaches us, rebukes us, corrects us, trains us in righteousness, right? The 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, we're not going to spend a lot of time on that because both Shane and I have talked about that passage, but God intends to do those things through his word. Every time you read or hear, God intends to teach, rebuke, correct, and train you in righteousness. Do you think about that as you read the Word of God? Third, God intends through His Word to instruct us by examples of warning and by examples and encouragement of hope. And, and you can see those two things. I have those verses written down. I would encourage you to read 1 Corinthians 10, 1 to 13. It's, Paul is talking about this example of the Israelites and their constant disobedience, and how they were constantly giving in to temptation, 
And he says, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down as an instruction for us. So an instruction for us in how not to fall into temptation in the same way that they did. God intends to do that through his word, to instruct you by way of warning as you read what happened to God's people as they disobeyed. But on the flip side of that, Paul in Romans 15 says, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, same thing, but he takes the opposite angle on it this time, that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. So it's not just that we read narratives and say, well, those guys were terrible, I don't want to do that. But we also read narratives and we should receive hope and encouragement as we see the faithfulness of God in the lives of his people. Right? So this is another thing God intends to do through his word. Give us instruction, both in encouragement and in warning as we read it. Number four, God makes us wise for salvation in Jesus. Again, Shane talked about this yesterday from 2 Timothy 3.15. The sacred writings are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. So I think that's pretty self-explanatory. We don't need to talk too much more about that. But then number five, God reveals himself to us in his word. Imagine the God of the universe condescending to reveal himself to you. Imagine that. And imagine that he created you to know him. And so as you begin to know him more and more through his word, you are actually fulfilling his purpose for your life by knowing him more, because that's what he created you for. God's desire is that we would know him not as we think he might be, but as he really is. And as we read, we know and understand him more. In Hebrews 6, verse 1, the author of Hebrews calls the people he's writing to immature because they have not moved on from elementary doctrines. That's amazing, isn't it? There's other places, many other places in the New Testament where people are called immature because their life is immature. But in Hebrews 6, they're immature because they haven't moved past the basics. They haven't learned anything more. And that's something that we should remember. But again, the goal of reading the Bible is not simply to learn theology, is it? Or to just be able to say more, to know more things about God. What does it mean to know God? That's a massive question that you can try to answer from Scripture. What does it mean to know Him? But that leads us to another critical question. What is the proper response to God's Word? When we hear it, when we read it, what is the right response? And when the Bible speaks about responding to God's word, the resounding note is obedience. Obedience, obedience, obedience. Over and over. We often think that knowing a lot about God is the goal, right? That's definitely my struggle. But what does it mean to know God? To know theology? Remember Jeremiah 9.24 let him who boasts, boasts in this, that he understands and knows me. 
So we read another theology book, and we're like, guess I can boast in that, right? Wrong. How does that knowledge show itself? Jeremiah tells us later, in Jeremiah 22, verse 16, he clarifies that. He says, speaking about a king, he judged the cause of the poor and needy. Then it was well, is this not to know me, declares Yahweh. So what is it to know God? Obey obedience. Acting in righteous and just ways is what it means to know God. We could add into that everything that we've been seeing in Titus so far. Titus 1 verse 1 that we heard a couple days ago. The knowledge of the truth which leads to godliness. That's the intention of knowing more truth. Is that it would lead us to godliness. Or then at the end of the chapter, they claim to know God, but deny him by their works. Did you hear that? How you show you know God is by your works. That's actually how you show you know God. Or Peter, in 2 Peter 1, adds his voice into that, and he lists this qual these qualities of virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and godliness and brotherly affection and love, and he says, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what does it mean to be fruitful in your knowledge of Christ Jesus? Steadfastness, brotherly love, godliness, actions, obedience. <laughs> now, let me just show you a few more passages. And this is not just me trying to prove text or just trying to hit you with a bunch of stuff. I just, the more I thought about this, the more I was like, oh, I can talk about this one and this one. This is just everywhere in Scripture. That our response to God's Word is to be obedience. That that is what God desires. So look at just a few of these that they are in your hand out there. Deuteronomy 4, that's what we heard the first night. Keep them and do them. For that will be your wisdom and understanding in the sight of the peoples. Or again, what I read you in Joshua 1 verse 8. The book of the law will not depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night. Why? So you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Think of what Jesus says in Matthew 7 24. Everyone who hears these words of mine and thinks that they're amazing, will be like a wise man. No. Everyone who hears these words and does them will be like a wise man. Or in the Great Commission itself, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, right? But what do you do as part of the Great Commission? Teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. So part of the Great Commission itself is teaching to obey the Word of God, not just telling people about what Jesus has done. Or, of course, the most famous passage probably on this, James 1, 21 through 25, starting, yeah, Therefore put away filthiness, rampant wickedness, receive with meekness the implanted Word, which is able to save your souls, but be doers, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves, for anyone who's a hearer of the word and not a doer is like a man who looks intently at his face in a mirror. 
he looks at himself and goes away and forgets what he was like. Now, when you read that, you're like, that's totally ridiculous. Who looks in a mirror and walks away and forgets what they look like? Exactly. Exactly. That's the point. The right James is saying, it's foolish. It's ridiculous even to think about looking at the Word of God and not doing it. If it is the Word of God itself, right? One person put it this way, as we think about not only reading but hearing the Word of God, the Christian's life should put his minister's sermon in print. That's, that's our response to the Word of God. That's heavy, isn't it? But as I was, yeah, just studying, preparing for this, that I just kept coming across this. What does God intend for us through his word? Obedience. Obedience, obedience, obedience. That's what God desires. But that's not all. We've got a second one here, which is worship. That is the other intention, desire, proper response to God's word is worship. What about everything that's not commands in the Word of God, right? Because how do you obey those things? How do you obey narrative? The problem with this whole idea of psalm roulette, you know, where you're like, oh, I'm feeling discouraged. How am I going to get through the day? <sighs> okay, this psalm looks good. I'm going to read that one. The problem with that, with this intention of reading Scripture for the intention of finding something for myself, Brothers and sisters, who is the main character of the Bible? Is it you? Is it Mahershal Hashbaz? That guy in Hosea? It's God. God is the main character of the Bible. And probably one of the struggles and reasons we don't read narrative more often, even though narrative makes up estimated about 43% of the Bible, is because narratives seem like they're all about other people, and I need something for myself, right? I don't care about these guys. But friends, the narrative is about God. It's about God, what he's like, what he's done, that he is faithful. And that's why we ought to be reading the Bible, ultimately, is that we would see God himself. Not just something for me, but God himself in all that he is for you. The more that we see God as he is in the scripture, how will we respond? In love, praise, awe, adoration, in a word, in worship. Right. And this is critical for getting that obedience piece right. Because it's easy for us, we are constantly slipping into legalism, aren't we? Believing that God is pleased with us because we obey. And that's not true. We don't obey to earn his favor, do we? We obey out of humble, worship-filled thankfulness for all that he has done for us in Christ. We obey because we love him. That's what Jesus says, right? John 14, 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. That's not a threat. It's a reality. That if you love Jesus, you'll keep his commandments. Obedience flows out of worship in the heart of a Christian. So, can I encourage you, whatever you call your daily Bible reading time, whether you call it your quiet time, 
your Bible time, your daily, whatever you call it, can I encourage you to rename it personal worship? Can I encourage you to do that? To call it that instead? I have found that to be a way more helpful way to think about it and frame it for myself, is to call it personal worship. There's a bunch of reasons for that. One, because it reminds me that my goal in this time is worship. Ultimately, that's what I was created for, is to worship. And so rather than I need, just need some encouragement or I need to be rebuked or, um, no, I need, I need to worship, actually. That's what I was created to do. But second, it situates it in tandem with the other rhythms of our communal life, doesn't it? Many of us perhaps have rhythms of family worship. Personal worship situates nicely with family worship, which situates nicely with corporate worship, doesn't it? Because all of our lives as Christians are to be worship. And so I would just encourage you to think of it that way instead, if you find that helpful. I have found it really helpful to do that because it just reframes my entire goal in going into that time. Is this is my moment for personally worshiping God? Later in the day, I will corporately worship God with my family. Later in the week, I will corporately worship God with my brothers and sisters at Douglas Baptist Church. It just situates those things together rather than this is my quiet time alone. It's not. That's a lot, isn't it? It's almost, if, that, if God intends to do all those things through his word, and we need to obey God's word, we need to worship as a response to God's word, it's almost like we need to prepare ourselves to read or hear God's word, isn't it? And so this is where I want to just spend a few minutes here. We've got ten minutes left. We want to think about the right posture to how do we approach God's word. If all these things are true then how ought we to approach God's word? And this is exactly what it's talking about. Um, this book was already recommended from the stage. This book, Before You Open Your Bible, really helpful. I actually intentionally didn't read it um, before I was working on this because I wanted to come up with my own thinking on this. And then I read it, kind of flipped through it afterwards, and I was like, oh, he's got a lot of the same things I had, which, is, which was cool. So he has a lot more than what I'm about to say because he obviously wrote a book on it. But... We want to think about how do we approach the Word of God. If this is the very Word of God, it's sufficient for life, and it is our very life itself, then how ought we to prepare ourselves to cultivate the right posture? I was going to give you time to discuss this, but in the interest of getting through the content, I think I'll just get through the content, if that's okay. I, I, forgive me for that. I know you like to chat. Um, <laughs> let me give you five virtues for hearing or reading the Word of God. Five postures of the heart to cultivate. These are in your notes. The first virtue to cultivate is this, expectancy. Expectancy. If these are the words of God himself, and everything we just said is true, that God through his word intends to instruct, to rebuke, to encourage, to warn, to admonish, to reveal himself. Are we listening to hear and expecting that God will do these things as we hear sermons preached, as we hear the word of God read, as we read it for ourselves? We ought to have, if all those things are in place, 
immense expectancy as we approach the Word of God, shouldn't we? Perhaps a good word to read, or a prayer to pray as the pastor is about to begin speaking, or as you're opening your Bible, as 1 Samuel 3 verse 10, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. That would be a good, just quick prayer as the pastor is about to preach, right? Whatever it is. Speak, your servant is listening. We should have expectancy. Second, we should cultivate the virtue of humility. Remember that beautiful verse in Isaiah 66, verse 2. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble, who's contrite in spirit, and who trembles at my word. As we approach the word of God, if we're thinking that our greatest need is to worship and obey, and if we're thinking that God intends through his word to rebuke and encourage and instruct, we ought to be cultivating the humility that says, I'm in desperate need as I come. What does Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount, his declaration of here's what my church looks like? What does he say is the very first thing that, that characterizes his people? They're poor in spirit, which means spiritually bankrupt, right? You have no, a poor person is someone who has no resources. Jesus says, the first mark of my people is that they know that they have no resources spiritually. And so as we come to the word of God, we ought to be cultivating this humility of, Lord, I have nothing spiritually in myself. Would you help me? Would you help me to tremble at your word as it comes to me? Because we need these words of eternal life because we have no life inside ourselves. Only death because of sin in ourselves. So expectancy and humility. Thirdly, we should cultivate the virtue of meekness as we approach the word of God. Now, meekness, that's a word that probably we often are a little confused about. Meekness is not the same as humility. In humility, we're primarily thinking of our self-assessment before God himself. In meekness, we are more speaking of humility as it relates to our interactions with others. One person has defined it this way, to be meek is to be not overly impressed with a sense of your own importance. Isn't that glorious? Not overly impressed with a sense of your own importance. Meek people are not demanding people. They don't demand on their own interests. But it doesn't mean that they're pushovers. Instead, meek people set aside their own interests and use whatever power and ability they have to champion the interests of others. Instead, especially those who are weak and vulnerable. So as you approach the Word of God, do you approach it meekly? Not being overly impressed with a sense of your own importance, not demanding your own interests, but actually, like Philippians 2 says, looking not to your own interests, but also to the interests of others? Do you approach the Word of God that way? Does that apply to your personal quiet time? Personal worship. Do you think not of yourself, but of others, as you read the Word of God? You're in a family. You're in a church community. You know brothers and sisters who are suffering. Do you come to the word of God saying, Lord, it's not just me who needs life, but it's my brothers and sisters who need the life of your word. 
And as you speak, would you speak words that I can then speak of encouragement to them, or of warning to them, or of rebuke to them, as the occasion is necessary? Are you thinking as you come to the Word of God, how can this moment bless not just me, but the believers and unbelievers around me as well, as I hear the Word of God? So I would encourage that meekness. Cultivate a posture as you come to the Word of God saying, this is not just for me. This is for those, my family, my children, my husband, my wife, my church, my neighbor. Help me, Lord, for them with your word. Fourth, cultivate the habit of attentiveness as you read the word of God. Friends, the text is where God's voice is heard. Not in the commentary, though it might help. Not in the podcast, though it might help. Not in the study notes, though they might help. When you are reading, read the text. Because the text is breathed out by God. It is his word. When you are listening to the word of God preached, listen to the text. Because the text is the word of God. When you're preaching, when you're teaching, when you're exhorting a brother or sister, preach, teach, encourage the text. Not just your own thoughts. Because the text is the very word of God. The text has the authority. Right? My thoughts on the text are not the word of God. The text itself is. And so as we are reading, as we are listening to the word of God, listen to the text. I'm not saying don't listen to the other words of your minister. Of course. But listen to the text. Because that's where the voice of God is heard. <coughs> Finally, cultivate the posture of faith. Because reading the Word of God and hearing the Word of God is an act of faith. It doesn't happen all at once. It's not always a mountaintop experience for us, is it? Not every sermon you listen is a mountaintop experience. Not every time you read Numbers 22 is a mountaintop experience. For both reading the Word of God yourself and for listening to preaching, they are cumulative, shaping events, aren't they? Uh, one of the pastors at my church, Bryce, uh, often talks about how as we are preaching the Word of God week in and week out, it's just one more hit with the chisel on the people of God. Just one more. We're not, it's not that in that one sermon we created an entire masterpiece. But it was just one more hit of the chisel, right? And you've experienced this, haven't you? Perhaps, I mean, the pastor of your church preached through the book of Romans or the book of whatever it was. And, and maybe each individual sermon, you didn't necessarily walk away changed, but by the end of a year or two of going through, you look back and you say, my life has changed because of this. That's the cumulative effect of the word of God. And so, but that takes faith, right? To actually come at it week by week, listening day by day, reading, saying, it may not be a mountaintop today, my life may not radically transform in this very moment, but by faith, God will change me through his word. God will mold me more into the image of Christ through his word. 
So expectancy, humility, meekness, attentiveness, and faith. That's what I would encourage you as far as five postures to cultivate as you come to hear the Word of God, as you come to read the Word of God. In the book, he has nine. So there you go. We've got at least four more. And he probably, it's probably more than that. But, yeah, that's, that's where I want to leave us for today. Now, if you look in your handout, I gave you a page below that of suggestions for personal worship. I wrote those up in long form just because I figured we probably wouldn't have time to talk about it. But I just have four brief suggestions for you there as you do cultivate your own personal worship. I thought about talking about that more during this time, but I thought, you know what, maybe I'll just write up some suggestions for you. We'll talk about these other things that I think are more important. But I've got four suggestions. Make it a habit. Create a consistent routine. Oh, five. Set realistic expectations. Embrace guides for your reading. Embrace guides for your prayer. So five things there. Have a look at those. Hopefully they'll be helpful to you um, in cultivating your own personal worship. But that's where we will finish for now. Um, wow, one minute over. Not too bad. <laughs> any, any questions as we finish? I know we got to get going here. But... Yes? Just one question. Uh, if you're married uh, without children, um, would you still consider personal worship as being something that the two individuals do themselves? Um, or... Do you think it's something that happens? Hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. I, I mean, I think I think it's all of us ought to be cultivating personal worship ourselves because we can pray commune, like we can pray with our spouses, we can pray with our friends, but we also, ought, if we are praying without ceasing, as we are instructed, then we ought to be praying ourselves as well, which is an act of worship. Um, Maybe you're sitting with your spouse in the same room doing your own reading. Like, you can call it whatever you want. You can call, it, you can call that family worship. I just, I would just encourage you to think of it as worship, basically. Whoever's there in the room with you, whether you're reading together, reading alone, praying together, praying alone, just think of it primarily as worship, rather than thinking of it as quiet time or something like that. Because I think it just reframes your expectation of what you're doing there. But yeah, it's a great question. Let me just finish in prayer, and I know we've got a session starting here, so we've got to run. Lord Jesus, you, you remind us that you have the words of eternal life. And I pray, Lord, that my brothers and sisters in this room would have been encouraged in that over the course of these three sessions, that these are your words, and they are words of life. Lord, help us as we come to your word, we pray. Even now, as we go to hear your word preached in Titus again, Lord, help the blossoms of good intentions that spring up in our hearts to come to full fruit, we pray. We thank you for your word, Lord. You are gracious to reveal yourself to us. Amen.